Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to The Rest of Politics, leading with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And we're going to go now back into a detailed discussion on Brexit. And for listeners, just very quickly, because it now seems distant history, UK voted to leave in 2016. And Theresa May then came in as Prime Minister, did these negotiations. People will remember vaguely, I guess, phrases like the Chequers Agreement, the Withdrawal Agreement. The backstop. Backstop, yep. Through negotiation with Michel Barnier at the end of 2018, produced her withdrawal agreement, took it to the House of Commons and was defeated three times. And eventually she resigned as prime minister. Boris Johnson was then elected and he came in promising that he had a different oven-ready deal. So he'd spent the previous three years rubbishing Theresa May's deal and then produced his new deal, uh, whose fundamental change was to create a border in the Irish Sea between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, just before we get into our interviewee, Alistair, give us a sense of what you were doing during that period. I think you were a major leading voice, weren't you, in the campaign to remain for a second referendum? Uh, I was in, in, within the campaign for a second referendum, yes. I wish I'd been a, more of a major voice in the referendum on the big question to leave, because I think, like a lot of people, I didn't think it was going to happen. Um, but Michel Barney is a a very, very interesting guy. I, I, I had a bit to do with him during that period because I think we were trying, he, he records a meeting in his book that's just come out called My Secret Brexit Diary, now out in English at Polity Press. And the, the you know, he, he recalls a meeting with Tony Blair where Tony Blair was saying that, you know, he thinks there is a, an opportunity for a, a second referendum on the final deal. Uh, now, of course, that's all history now. But what is absolutely extraordinary about Barnier's book is, I mean, God, I, as you know, I keep a diary and there were times when I just thought, how did we get through so much in one day? But for him, it was like literally for year, month after month, year upon year, he's having to be the sole negotiator representing 27 countries and all the sort of institutions of Europe and holding so many people together. And he did it. And there's, a, there's actually a quote on the back of the book, the English version from my old colleague, jo Jonathan Powell, whose assessment is that Michel Barnier's new book help, helps explain why Britain ended up being comprehensively outnegotiated over <laughs> Brexit. <laughs> Where were you when where were you when all this was well, going on? So I was a minister throughout this period, minister first in David Cameron's government, then in Theresa May's government. Um and 
it was a very interesting period for me because initially I felt as a minister very excluded from these negotiations. Mm. Theresa May and her team kept their cards very close to their chest. I knew little more about the negotiations than what the public had, often actually nothing more than the public did. But when the withdrawal agreement came out, I thought this is something I can get behind. I believed in Theresa May. And fundamentally, this thing that we now call the backstop was a customs union. And it seemed to me a good pragmatic compromise. It was going to keep Britain close to the European markets. It was, I think, the foundation of us being politically close to Europe, diplomatically close to Europe, but also delivering on many of the things that Brexit voters wanted. They wanted control over immigration, leaving the political institutions, etc. So it seemed like a good deal. And I really became the major spokesman for that deal. I remember being mocked by my colleagues as being the comical alley of Theresa May's deal. I was out there like Saddam Hussein's general defending it on the airwaves. Often I was doing, one day I was doing, I think I did 27 media interviews in a day just trying to defend this deal. Um, and it was fascinating because I discovered amongst other things that as we went into the third vote, many of my ministerial colleagues two and a half years in still did not know what a customs union was. Mm. I was having to organize events to try to brief ministers on, on the details that steal right the way through to the votes. Well, the thing about his book, what comes through a lot is just how exasperated he and some of the European leaders feel that the people they're negotiating with just, uh, he's got a lot of time for the civil servants, but some of the ministers and some of the politicians literally have no, no sense of what they're talking about. Well, I, I, also, I also wrote to Theresa May and tried to persuade her to see if she would be allow me to move to Brussels with my family to be a full-time negotiator because I had read about the fact that that's what Macmillan had done with Edward Heath. I was very, very worried about the amateurism of British government, the sense that ministers reshuffle all the time, that they're not really on the ground. And I was terrified that unless we had somebody who was on top of the details located in Brussels, we would be out-negotiated. Anyway, without further ado, here is the interview that Alistair and I did with Michel Barnier on the third anniversary of Brexit. Welcome to The Rest is Politics Leading with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. And with a very special guest who, if you look up this gentleman online, you will discover that his most significant role, so far as the United Kingdom is concerned, he was the European Commission Head of Task Force for Relations with the UK, a.k.a. Europe's Mr. Brexit, Michel Barnier, who got that job in part because of his experience as a European Commissioner, as a Cabinet Minister in France, as a long-serving member of the French Parliament, as so somebody who knows an awful lot about negotiations. So, Michel, I guess maybe a good place to start. We're meeting around the time of the third anniversary of our departure. Trying to be neutral about this rather than just seeing it through the European Union lens, what's your assessment of how Brexit has gone? Brexit is a lose-lose game and a lose-lose game for everybody on both sides. I, I did not change my mind. Uh, there is no added value to Brexit. There is no added value to be out of the single union, the single market or the custom union. And nobody has been able, even Mr. Farage, like listen carefully, and when I met him in my office uh, a few years ago, even Mr. Farage, nobody uh, has been able to give me the, any proof of, this, of the added value of the Brexit to be out. To be frank, I, I, I look at the, the current difficulty of the UK. Nobody can be happy 
both sides, it's the same for EU. Huh? Many things are not going well in, in the EU side. Nobody can be a pure because we need to be uh, stable. We need stability and progress on both sides to cooperate together. But I think that all these difficulties, current difficulties in the UK, are not linked to the Brexit. But all these difficulties are more severe and more serious because of the Brexit. Monsieur Barnier, thank you very much for coming. One question. Did you think that the deal which Theresa May negotiated was a better deal than the deal which the UK ended up with under Boris Johnson? Essential part, Rory, of these two deals are the same. As far as the trade with the single market, the only difference, the key difference is about Ireland and Northern Ireland and the way to find solutions to the problem created by the Brexit in Northern Ireland. What create problems in Northern Ireland and for the Good Friday Belfast Agreement and for stability and peace on the island of Ireland is nothing else than the Brexit. So we try with great patience to, to, to find operational and concrete solutions to these problems. And I always try to work with any kind of uh, dramatization or ideology uh, um, in the most objective way as possible. And finally, we we found a, a solution with uh, Theresa May at the end. She was not able to get the majority to support uh, this, this, uh, this, uh, this option, which is, it was uh, for the UK in its totality to, to remain a certain time in the custom union. Johnson was opposed to this option and we find another solution. And this is a proof that we have been on the European side very flexible. I I read your we, we had dinner on Monday and you very kindly gave me a copy of your book and I've 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 read it very, very quickly. Um but I just want to I get the sense that you you had much, much more respect for Theresa May than certainly for Boris Johnson and certainly for Nigel Farage, for whom I sense even with your diplomatic skills, a certain level of contempt that is commendable. I commend you for that. But here's what you said about Theresa May. This is when she had the awful, Rory, you remember the Tory party conference when the, the letters fell off and the prankster brandished a P45 and she had a terrible coughing fit. And you wrote this, I don't want to laugh at this, let alone mock her for it. She is a courageous, tenacious woman surrounded by a great many men who are more interested in their personal fortunes than in the future of their country. So you see her as somebody of duty and diligence surrounded by men who are there for their own interests rather than the national interest. Is that a fair assessment? She always acts with dignity, a certain courage, tenacity, the reason why I respect Theresa May. I think we, we worked with her in good faith, but for the rest, what happens around her in the Tory party has been evident. These people uh, succeed to push uh, Theresa May outside. Huh? And you said of um, the two other prime ministers, this is, this is when a motion went in finally to get rid of her. And you said, this woman is really up against it, but I think she'll win. It's madness to see the extent to which the future of this great country and our relationship with it has for three years now been dependent upon the bickering, backstabbing, serial betrayals and thwarted ambitions of a handful of Conservative Party MPs. Boris Johnson, who since yesterday has been sporting a new haircut, God knows what that looks like, will, along with David Cameron and a few others, carry a real burden of responsibility in their country's history. 
So you're quite damning about Johnson. Without given any lessons and, and being always respectful, Johnson was much more Baroque, if I can use this word. I, I write mm. this word in my book than Theresa May. More than that, uh, it seems to me that during the time of Johnson, the last year, we conclude the two agreements with, with Johnson, November 19, and the second agreement on the withdrawal of the UK from the single market. Uh, during this time, with Johnson and Frost, ideology took hold against uh, a certain traditional pragmatism of the UK. And it, frankly speaking, I think that I've been all along this long story, and in particular during this last year, much more pragmatic than the Brits. Mm. Which is unusual. Unusual for a French. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Can I? So j just to remind listeners, um, Michel Barnier led these negotiations during Brexit, and he had two major negotiations, one which was a negotiation for more than two years with the government of Theresa May, and then a shorter negotiation after Boris Johnson was elected. And I, I was a minister uh, under Theresa May, and I remember the moment when the withdrawal agreement was announced at the end of 2018. And when it came, I want to quote a famous British politician. He said, this is a terrible deal. This is not a compromise. It is a capitulation. The European Union negotiators have won. They have humiliated the British. Do you accept this uh, view, which was the view of Alistair's friend, Tony Blair? <laughs> no, um, I didn't remember this, this sentence, but I do not agree. It was not an humiliation. It was certainly not a capitulation. It was just, no more, no less, a treaty drawing the lessons and drawing the consequences of the Brexit. The decision of the UK to leave, in the same time, it was not an obligation, Rory, you know that to leave the single market and to leave the custom union. But this decision is globally historical and, and in a certain sense, dramatic. As I said, personally, in front of the press, a few days after my nomination in October 16, in the press room of the commission in Brussels, I said clearly, nobody must uh, underestimate the consequences of the Brexit. The Brexit will have many, many consequences on the legal, financial, technical, economic, social, and political dimension. Leaving 600 treaties, leaving 45 years of cooperation have many consequences. So that, that, that is no humiliation uh, and no capitulation in my view. You, you met a lot of uh, British politicians during this period and what comes through in the in your diary, which honestly the the work rate and the travel and the number of meetings that you're having it's phenomenal. I mean, you just non-stop because you're you're having to hold the twenty seven together, and part of the British strategy is to try to break you apart from that. A huge mistake, a big mistake, and 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 it actually probably cemented the European strength in the in the negotiations. But if I give you um, go through the the four main interlocutors you had, is this a fair assessment? from reading your book, that David Davis, cordial, but a bit cavalier. Raab, unpleasant, not very bright, and not very good at his job. Barclay, plodding and efficient. Frost, arrogant. Are they fair assessments? It is your words. Huh? 
Yeah, yeah. Not this my, is my words based upon my reading of your book. And <laughs> you're, al- you're allowed now to, to push it, back any of them. No, no. I, the negotiator, the minister with who I have for a long time, uh, a cordial relation is David Davis because mm-hmm. we knew we knew each other a long time before uh, because we, we were, we used to be, uh, both of us, uh, Minister for European Affairs in 1994, 95. Each of them have as his own personality, each of them has been uh, ephemeral. Okay. Because it was a, it was a, <laughs> they were the main player. It was a, I don't know why, but it, it was the reality, the, the truth that I had during these four years, four different British negotiators. Yeah. One of the complaints of the politicians is they said that they were not the real negotiators. They said that particularly the senior civil servants like Ollie Robbins were actually doing the negotiation and they felt that they didn't really have much involvement or freedom in the process. That's one of the reasons why they kept resigning. They felt that Ollie Robbins and the ambassadors and Theresa May were really controlling the process. Did you feel that there was a challenge there that the politically elected ministers were not actually controlling the negotiations, that really the control was coming from the civil servants. Yes, you're right in a certain sense, but uh, what can I say? It, it was a British choice to organize a negotiation as the British decide to do that. I, I have no comment. Uh, on my side also, I had a president of the commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, head of cabinet, uh, very strong, uh, but uh, they trust me. They trust me to be the unique and single negotiator. And to let me just record that it was the very first time that for a, such a serious and extraordinary negotiation, the three institutions of the EU chose one single negotiator. Mm. I was the negotiator for the commission with all the technical means and the, the capacity of the commission to, to deliver expertise, uh, but also the negotiator for the European Parliament, and also for 27 member states. And it's the reason why uh, to, to prove this trust, which, which was key for me and for the, the negotiation on the EU side, I, I took part during four years to the European uh, Council. Mm. I was invited, which is was totally uh, unusual, yeah. uh, to, to take part, uh, to, to sit at the table, to be seated at the table with the, the, the head of state and the government during four years, every time that they spoke about uh, mm. about the Brexit. You clearly had respect for Theresa May. You felt she was dutiful, diligent, and so forth. You then, in dealing with Johnson, who I don't think is any secret to any of our listeners that both Rory Stewart and I think is a pathological liar and a terribly bad human being, and I don't expect you to respond to that, but... It must have made it very difficult to negotiate with somebody who the 27 leaders, some of whom, who I know personally, felt they could have no trust or faith in anything that he said. And that's what you were negotiating with. And you were doing it from the perspective of saying, I'm going to show no emotion. I'm going to, I'm not going to speak out against these people. I mean, your diary is an extraordinary portrait in patience. And I don't quite know how you kept your cool some of the time. What Boris Johnson and some others said by words in radio or in speech, one as a point is what they sign. And signing a treaty on the name of a so great country that the UK is a, is a key point for but us. then they went against it on the protocol. The point is that they have signed 
after they have negotiated very carefully, word by word, comma by comma, uh, this, this treaty, there is no surprise. So for the 20, for the 27 member states, for the parliament, the, 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 what is important and what remains important now, it, the, the, the treaty itself, we are speaking, Alistair, of two international treaties. I worry that there's a problem in the structure of the negotiation. You were appointed as the unique negotiator, and you were there throughout the five-year period, representing the three institutions. And against you, you had this British system where ministers were reshuffled very frequently, where the civil servants were there permanently and the ministers were coming in and out. So here is an idea, a hypothesis. Would it have been better if they had done what was done with Macmillan and Ted Heath, which is to put the minister permanently in Brussels, leading the negotiation in the same way that you were leading the negotiation, rather than having the system of them flying in and out all the time? It's possible, Rory, that uh, it would have been more efficient for the Brits to have a permanent negotiator, but the, the ambassador was there and took a, a large place, a key place in the negotiation. The key point is to know what is the link, what is the level of trust between the who negotiate and who decide. Huh? And uh, on my side, I was a single negotiator, but this, this unity of the 27 was mm. not given by chance, did not fall from the sky. Uh, I've built this unity every day by several means and several ways. For the first time in Brussels, in such an extraordinary negotiation, we, we play total transparencies, total. In addition of that, I went once per week in the capital of the 27th. Mm, every once Meet, a week. Meeting the prime minister, the business community, the trade unions, the national parliament, the press. And every, every week, at least every week during four years. Huh? So this is a, the, the reason of the unity. And if I may add one point, uh, what the, the Brits did not understand uh, until now. I'm sure they understand now, but uh, it was losing time to try to divide us because at the end of this road linked to the European treaty, we needed to be uni unanimous to approve. So that means that the, uni the obligatory unanimity was a key for unity, mm. the key. Mm. That means that one problem of one member state, first of all, Ireland, the peace in Ireland, but also uh, the, the place of the two sovereign bases of the UK in Cyprus, but also uh, Gibraltar mm -hmm. for Spain, but also for eight member states, the fishery issue, all these specific and national issues became obligatory challenge for all. Yeah. There's, there's, when Rory talks about the system, though, Friday the 9th of November 2018, this is you saying this now. As for Dominic Raab, he appeared in front of an audience of worried business leaders, no doubt with the aim of reassuring them. I'm not sure he succeeded. He said, I hadn't quite understood the full extent of this, but if you look at the UK and look at how we trade in goods, we're particularly reliant on the Dover-Calais crossing. No shit, Sherlock. That's me, not you. This is you again. I don't even want to crack a smile at this, but there is most definitely something wrong with the British system. It's now almost two and a half years since a majority of British people voted for Brexit under the leadership of politicians like Raab, and every passing day shows that they have not realised the consequences or what is truly at stake. Exactly what I mean a few minutes ago when I spoke about the, the lack of realism. 
But remember, uh, when we went with Jean-Claude Juncker for this famous dinner, 10 Downing Street mm -hmm. with Theresa May, a few days before, the, the, the official minister in charge of the negotiation, David well, you said Davis, they had very nice French wine. Say, French wine are, are nice. <laughs> Not the French wine, but, but uh, they are nice. And uh, David Davis said in the British press a few days ago about the two uh, agencies the two European agencies located in oh, in, yeah. in in in, uh, in London, and he felt uh, medicine stay, agencies yeah. and banking agencies. They say he said uh, two days before, in the middle of the negotiation, it's perfectly possible that these two agencies remain in London. No way, <laughs> no way. It was totally impossible. It was legally impossible. The EU agency has to be located in one member state of the EU. He wanted he wanted to have his gato and manje it. <laughs> I think we're just going to take a quick break. See you in a second. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos... Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, rather fittingly, given the interview subject of Monsieur Barnier, this episode of Leading is sponsored by The New European. The New European's independent journalism is world-class, and in terms of presenting a positive view of Britain's relationship with Europe, it is simply peerless. It's full of fascinating articles from across the continent and around the world, both political and cultural. And since Brexit, it's fair to say The New European has been a leading light in trying to balance out the corrosive nationalistic media in the UK that helped us get us into this mess in the first place. Besides my weekly diary, you'll find regular articles from writers as varied as Bonnie Greer, John T. Bloom, who is brilliant on the economy, Tanit Koch from Germany, Will Self, Jason Solomons, Mitch Benn and James Ball. And here's some good news for you. They've done a special offer just for our listeners and these are the best rates you'll get anywhere guaranteed and wait for it with a bonus sign up to the newspaper and website for just two pound a week or just the digital version for a pound a week and they will also give you absolutely free a copy of the book they've done of their best front pages since that dreadful day june the 23rd 2016 brexit it's a real treat and if you're buying it elsewhere it costs you 15 pounds you get it for nothing so sign up now, you'll be sporting top-class independent journalism and doing something positive to correct the right-wing bias of most of the UK media today. Just go to www.theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash leading. That's theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash L-E-A-D-I-N-G. Thanks very much and all the best. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics Leading. We're here with Michel Barnier. There is now across Britain, a very strong and consistent view that Brexit was a mistake. In every constituency except one now, the majority believes Brexit was a mistake, which means there is now a political opportunity for British politicians 
at least to campaign for rejoining, for example, the customs union, but even possibly in the medium to long term, rejoining the European Union. What, what, is, what would be involved in doing that? It's for you to choose. It's for you to decide. It's for you to, to act. The door is open for the custom union. The door is open for the, the single market. Uh, the, the door is open for the union. But it is uh, for the UK people to decide, not, not me, uh, frankly speaking. Uh, the, the only point is to, to be aware that uh, if from now to this time of discussion at this point, we have to avoid two great divergence regulatory divergence, mm. because it could be more complicated, but it is for the UK to decide. Just on, on that, there's an assumption, I think, in, in our country and probably in Europe, that there may be a change of government fairly soon. Uh, and you said this, page 113, among my British interlocutors, Keir Starmer, always courteous and professional, is without doubt, along with Hilary Benn, chair of the House of Commons exiting the EU committee, the one who impresses me the most for his ability to grasp the detail of what is at stake in the Brexit negotiations. Listening to him, you say, I get the feeling that Keir Starmer will one day be UK Prime Minister. So what gave you that impression? You, no, you presumably didn't think that about no, Jeremy Corbyn. No. If I, I, I wrote this sentence, it's because I, um, I thought at that time that uh, Keir Starmer, among other people, other leaders, uh, had at that time and has today the, 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 cap the capacity to be mm -hmm. prime minister, but nothing, nothing more. It's not for me to choose. Yeah, yeah, British people to choose who will be their future or next prime minister. Not me, never. Yeah, but but, but, Michel, let me tell you. Just, just my question is, is clear. Working with Keir Starmer several times, I thought that he, he, he is a strong, a strong leader. He has the capacity. And what do you think? What do you think the European Union wants or expects from a Labour government in in relation to the Britain's relations with Europe? We expect and we hope for any government, the government today, the government tomorrow. Uh, once again, it's the choice of the UK people, the British people, to respect the signature, to implement, to normalise. In particular, this very key issue of the, the peace and the stability in Northern Ireland, and to build on this base of trust a new partnership. Uh, because for the people who listen to us just right now, I want to say that the, the future of a cooperation, the future of Europe, the continent of Europe, including UK, the continent, th this future is much more important than the Brexit. We need to build this strong partnership. Uh, as far as war and peace are concerned in Europe, in particular in those days, as far as the climate change is concerned, as far as the poverty in Africa and a way to help this incredible continent to develop itself and to, for the people to live where, where they are born, capacity to resist and to control the financial services in the world or the internet companies. There is so many so many global challenges. We can fight, we can resist to the challenges alone, nor uh, neither Germany, France, or, or UK. We need to be together to cooperate. That is the most important. One of the global challenges which was relevant to Brexit and which you spoke about during your campaign for the presidency is the challenge of immigration. 
Can you share with us your thoughts on what kind of challenge immigration poses to France, to Europe, to Britain, and what policy solutions you would have? Rory, we need to be precise to avoid any kind of misunderstanding. When I spoke during the primary in France uh, two years ago last year, when I spoke today, uh, when I speak today, is about the migration coming from Africa, North Africa, Syria, and so on. And uh, I'm not speaking about the, the movement of population, the movement of citizens inside the EU. No question, no debate. The, this, this freedom movement is one of the four fundamental freedom of the single market. But were you raising the issue in the way that you were out of a worry that Marine Le Pen is in the ascendancy within French, French politics? And do you think Marine Le Pen could be the, the next French president? I think that uh, one lesson of the Brexit is very clear. An event which seemed improbable can happen. So it was true for UK. The Brexit was improbable, even for some of the Brexiters. And it happened. So this is the reason why the first chapter of my book is called uh, A Warning, perhaps for you, for the Brits, but surely for us. We need to draw the lessons and to not to, con to confuse, to, to merge what I call the popular sentiment, the social anger in many regions against uh, unemployment, uh, against an uncontrolled migration, against uh, insecurity, uh, lack of security. These are the, the, the tools, uh, the, the, the materials of the social anger, the popular sentiment we need to take into account. We need to understand and we need to answer. Is Macron doing that? The Europeans in general have to draw the lesson, and I think we have begun to, to, to draw the lessons by less uh, naivety in our trade relations, uh, better control of the border with 10,000 new posts uh, at the border of the EU uh, by, uh, for instance, uh, Alistair. For the first time, we borrow 750 billion, billion euros mm, after the COVID crisis to invest and to react the very first time in 60 years that the EU decided to borrow and to invest together. This is uh, the, the right way, in my view, to, to protect ourselves. Michel, you became a politician at the age of 27. You've been a politician for many, many decades. Can you reflect, looking back, on what it means for you to be a politician, to have chosen this life? What were the positive aspects of being having a life in politics and what were the personal negative aspects of a life in politics yes good and personal question for, for, to be to be to be clear i i was in, involved in politics sooner when i was 14 and 15, 15 years <laughs> thanks to a great statesman general de gaulle the contrary of a politician i'm proud and it is my first reason to be proud to have been involved in his party when I was 15 or 16. And I was elected the first time by the citizens in 22 and at the National Assembly at 27. I used to be even the, the youngest member of the French National Assembly. You know, it was titled, you lose very quickly. <laughs> but but uh, what is the politics? What is the reason to be involved in politics? For me, it's very simple and very difficult at the same time. When you are in, involved, you have values. Convictions, ideas, projects, the citizen give you a, a mandate, money, public money. What must you do? What must you do with all these tools? You have to create progress. 
collective progress for the people. So that at the end of your mandate, four years, five years, six years, the people can see a progress in their collective life. It is what is, in my view, politics. And what I always try to do as a minister, I've been the president of the territory of Savoy in my region. What I always try to do is to put people coming from different sides together on the same table to build together, to create progress together. Can I maybe make this my last question? I just wondered on that, whether you were worried about the state of the Franco-German relationship, which for so often has been seen as the, as the motor of Europe. Yes, I'm concerned. If you look at the past, things, uh, the Treaty de l'Elysée between General de Gaulle and Conrad Adenauer, this cooperation has never been spontaneous and never been evident, never been easy, except perhaps, Alistair, during the time where the two leaders were on one side, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, mm. and on the other side, Helmut Schmidt, because they had between themselves a, a real and great friendship. So, this cooperation is, if I may say, day after day, more and more necessary and less and less sufficient. So we have to work together. It, it has been never easy to find solution, to find proposal, but being always careful to take into account the others, to respect the others. French are sometimes arrogant. Um, I try not to be arrogant. I think for a long time that in the EU, Today, past EU with the UK, every and each member state has an added value, even the, 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 the smallest one. Mm. As my final question, Michel, thank you also for coming on the show. I want to return to the question of what is the negative personal impact of being a politician? You talked about progress, collective progress, but from a personal point of view, what sacrifices does a politician make in terms of their personal life, their family? No, the, the, the lack of time for, for, for your uh, private life, for your, your wife, for, for your children, your grandchildren. Huh? The reason why I dedicate my book to my two grandchildren, because uh, two, two of them. You shared them with Johnson and May. Yes. <laughs> two of them. <laughs> two of them were born during the negotiation and I sang them, uh, one boy, one girl, to have accepted to share their grandfather with uh, the, the wits. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Très bien. Alors, quand on a fait une interview avec François Hollande, yes. on lui a donné l'occasion de, en quelques mots, une minute, d'expliquer s'il y a des, des auditeurs français qui croyaient que vous allez on a les pensées en français d'expliquer dans une minute tout ce qu'on a discuté en français but, but what about the british auditors don't worry about them but, don't worry about it <laughs> non le le fond des choses c'est que dans le monde d'aujourd'hui qui est un monde dangereux instable injuste avec des pays qui ont fini d'émerger qui sont de grands puissance, la Chine, le Brésil, l'Inde, il faut être ensemble. Il faut être ensemble pour compter, pour défendre nos valeurs, nos idées, nos intérêts, pour être respecté par les grands. Quand vous regardez une table, euh, la table où se trouvent les grands leaders qui organisent l'ordre ou le désordre du monde, est-ce qu'on est à cette table Inévitablement, inexorablement, euh, à, parce que nous avons une taille insuffisante, une puissance insuffisante. Les pays européens vont être exclus de cette table s'ils sont tout seuls. Si nous sommes ensemble, nous restons à cette table. Super. Alors, merci. 
Merci à vous. Un bon message pour les Britanniques qui n'ont pas écouté. For the French too, hein? Et les Français, c'est vrai, c'est vrai. Without giving any lessons. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Ok, Michel, merci. Merci et au revoir. Well, there we are. That was Michel Barnier. Um, for those who listened to his French without necessarily understanding it, he was essentially saying that in the modern world, with all its challenges, the countries that stand apart from each other are going to fail and that we to be taken seriously by the big powers in the world, we have to stand together. And he issued that as a warning to the UK on Brexit, but also a warning to countries like France. And, and he did it so beautifully. I mean, yet again, I mean, I think I get seduced by this more than you do because your French is better than mine. But I, I couldn't believe his inevitablement, inexorablement. I mean, <laughs> the ordre, désordre. I mean, it was, I thought it was so sort of beautiful. And the fact that everything he said always had a, in French, had a tricolon, where it was yeah, 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 three adjectives behind each word. It, it's funny because he, he, he doesn't think he speaks very good English. But when you read the book, honestly, the complexities and the sheer scale of the number of issues he was dealing with, the number of people he was dealing with and trying to keep on board, he did, he really did do a pretty amazing job. And I think in the interview, there was a sort of reminder of that, wasn't there? When he said, talking about the individual member states, how he was having to think about fishery, the Irish border, the sovereign British bases in Cyprus, mm. the issues around Gibraltar, and how that clarity of all these different issues was lacking when you read the media reports in Britain. He was able to articulate that so well. I think he's somebody, th this sort of sense of his patience, and he did have that mug, he had this mug on his desk the whole time, keep calm and negotiate. Um, and it must have been infuriating seeing this never-ending succession of different characters all playing politics or using it to play politics. Um, but I think that, the, you know, we talked a little bit about, we've talked a lot actually about how the European Union has pretty held, held together pretty well over Ukraine. But I think the the dry run of that was them holding together over the Brexit negotiations because part of the British strategy throughout was to kind of divide and rule or separate them off from Barnier. It was a natural strategy, wasn't it? Because there was every reason to believe two things which turned out to be untrue, but which many British negotiators, including diplomats, had said had been true for 45 years, which was ultimately uh, the European Union doesn't necessarily hold together, that you can end up with tensions, particularly between France and Germany and that nothing is ever agreed till the last moment. And, mm. and this myth, which had been very important for previous European negotiations, was quite dangerous in Brexit because it created the expectations, first of all, with David Cameron when he was trying to get a deal before the Brexit referendum, but then for Theresa May and Boris Johnson that somehow we were going to pull some funny rabbit out of the hat at the last moment when the EU was determined that that wasn't going to happen. Mm. Anyway, off microphone, as it were, off air... Uh, the best thing that emerged from that was that he's invited me to swim in this wonderful lake up in the Haute-Savoie. So I shall definitely be doing that. The two of you going to go together? Am I going to get a vision of you and this very distinguished, beautifully coiffed silver frocks French politician? Silver so frock? Doing, doing the breast stroke together. What's a silver frock? What are you silver talking about? Well, silver fox. Silver fox. They said a silver frock. I mean, you suggesting Barnier goes swimming in women's clothes. I thought, <laughs> what is on about that? Anyway, that was Michel Barnier. We've got another Michel next week. Um, and that is when I'm flying solo with the one of the greatest athletes of all time that Rory thought was a basketball player. <laughs> that is Michael Johnson. He will be on leading next week. Thank you all very much. Bye-bye.